everybody, and welcome to a new episode of StartupRad.io, your podcast show with startup news and interviews from Germany. Hello and welcome everybody. This is once again Jörn from StartupRad.io. Today bringing you something like a German tradition. We have been doing the annual fintech review since 2014 in and on our German channel. So you will find the links if you are able to speak German in our show notes here. Nonetheless, 2017 is coming to a close and this recording was done on the 15th of December 2017. And we are looking in what fit happened to FinTech in 2017 and a brief outlook what is going to happen in 2018. My guests are now Luca. Luca from Berlin. How are you doing? Good, good, great. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you here. You are the um, uh, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Get Penta. We will have in the show notes the link to all the interviews we already did together, right? Yep, that's right. And I have here in person by himself, Paolo. Can you give us a brief introduction for you? Thanks. I'm Paolo Cironi. I am a fintech.leader for the IBM Industry Academy Worldwide. And I like to consider myself an entrepreneur of ideas. Unfortunately, we didn't have the people we had like for the last fintech reviews. But let me give you a brief idea what we talked about like in 2016. We talked about how fintech and real finance got together because number 26 became a bank and then was known as N26. There have been more and more fintechs around in late 2017. Frankfurt became number, uh, there was already an up swing on the horizon for the fintechs in Frankfurt. And last year, there was a big discussion about co-branding in fintech between banks and fintechs. So guys, let's give a little message from our sponsors, support for this podcast. And the following message comes from Slack, where work happens all over the world. No more losing time, context switching. More than 1,000 apps seamlessly integrate with Slack. So that's less time jumping between tools and more time to get things done. More appvec.com. And I appreciate your sponsoring as well as Startups Observer, Startups.Observer, the online dating platform for startups, especially fintechs and investors and corporates. Okay. Here we go. That was like the official part. And now, guys, I would give you a few thoughts that I collected over time. For example, I'm here browsing on the website of a company called Baco Consulting. They are a small consultancy in Germany, but what they do, they sell, they collect numbers on fintech investments all over Europe. And they write stuff like, Fintech VC, Europe on fire and show all of the numbers published, as I say again, published for Germany, the UK and other countries and show how big Asia and the US is. For me, personal opinion is it may not tell 100% true picture because there's an increasing tendency in Germany as well as in Europe to not disclose investment rounds personal feeling. That's why we are working, especially for Ryan Mine here on a partnership to get those numbers, at least on an aggregated basis, out. Also for me, it was very important when I got together to prepare this 
was how active in 2017 the big players became. I started out this year with the interview from Deutsche Bank. They are in the process of starting their own fintech program where you can access Deutsche Bank via an API. That was a world premiere we had in January last year, as well as the then um, expansion of Deutsche Bank, especially in terms of investments, where they did actual investments in a startup called Twins, also located here in Frankfurt. And I do see it as a trend. So um, banks get more prepared to compete with startups as well as not shying away to actually buy stakes or buy whole startups. Yeah, that, that was my main observation for 2017. Paolo okay, looks so, like he wants to say something. Yeah, so so let me let me share this point of view. Let's say that the fintech uh, revolution started in the US uh, around 2008 uh, when uh, we saw more clearly that uh, uh, new ideas were put on the table. And it started like a B2C type of movement, uh, which uh, quickly transformed uh, in the US more into a B2B time type of uh, uh, configuration. And that shows the maturity, I guess, of uh, some of these startups, which realize how difficult it is in any case uh, to replace banking. And they thought that coming up with a proposition which is more about competition would have been a win-win for everybody in the market. Europe is going through the same type of transformation. So Europe started a few years after as a bit like a B2C and is as well transforming into B2B. That means that we should expect in 2017, we should have expected and the same in 2018 to see that the number of deals decreases a little bit, wanting also the effect of the Brexit. So there is a, a way more uh, a consolidation approach, I believe, uh, into the startup markets compared to the effervescent uh, of the first years. Different is Asia because of China. China we know is and for a long while will be a B2C type of market. So that to me would explain also the reason why the structure of uh, DVC deals uh, is different compared to what we experienced in Europe in the years before. Now, looking forward uh, and focusing on Europe, uh, I think that uh, we are going to face a perfect regulatory storm uh, in Europe in 2018. We are going to have the first uh, releases of the PSD2 requirements uh, we have in January 2018, uh, the MIFID II. We may say to the people who are listening to this, PSD2, okay, so. Payment Service Directive number two, and it means... Exactly. So let me explain. Let's take a look at the world, first of all. Okay, yeah. The world is divided into three macro regions today for fintech, US, uh, Europe, uh, and uh, China. Now, the US typically owns the technology. That's where most of the technological innovations were born. might be different in the coming future, but so it is today. Europe owns the regulation, typically, and China, the business model. The three of them are important. They need to go together because if you forget one or the other, you cannot be sustainable. What does it mean that Europe owns uh, the regulation? The European Union uh, decided that they wanted to transform the way the financial services were managed uh, across uh, the 27 countries uh, on the European continent. So they released four sets of uh, regulatory frameworks uh, which are going to hit the market in 2018. The first one, is the so-called PSD2 that wants to enforce uh, open banking. That means uh, asking banks uh, to create APIs that allows a third party 
which are not necessarily banks, they could be startups, fintech, to access client data in a way they can generate new services that can be sold to the final consumers. So that's very important because it should make banking way more competitive because it allows third parties companies like startup to access in a more structural and robust way the data that is contained in the uh, bank's coffers that is owned by their customers. The second regulation is the MIFI 2, which is a regulation about the transparency of the investments that each and everybody of us make when we buy an equity, when we buy a Bitcoin, when we buy a bond from one of our banks or from one of our robot advisors. This is also very important because it will force banks to realize that they need to create more added value for the client and that cannot happen without technology. So my favor, all of those fintechs, which have a B2B type of uh, uh, proposition that banks will want to onboard in 2018 and 2019 to transform their business. Then we have another regulation, which is called PREPS, which is about the products that the asset managers create because they need to create more transparency around the content of their products, which might also force the asset managers, since they will be more exposed to the type of products they sell to the client, to use technology to transform the way to try to generate the returns to make them more appealing and more robust and more relevant. And then we have the fourth regulation, which is called GDPR, that is about uh, the privacy, so the usage of our data, because you understand that we are going through a period where data will be the new token, the new oil, and therefore the European Union also wants to make sure that everybody is protected by uh, the fact that a third party may use their data in principle, to their advantage, but you know what happens. It may also be used against them. So the European Union really wants to create a common playing field. That was quite an overview. Greatly appreciate that. Um, so basically, you say that usually uh, I read once an article in The Economist that said financial crises are important for the advancements of finance. Basically, they are shaped by crisis which are then followed up by regulations. And right now, after 2008, there was like a ladder storm coming everything from CRD to MIFID to PSD to BCS, Basel Council on Banking Supervision, and all this stuff coming as a regulation into banks that forced them to change. And now you're seeing opportunities for fintechs with this regulation. Yes, I think that... Uh... Uh, fintechs, especially those with a P2B model, needs to understand uh, what is really happening in banking these days, which is something which is happening worldwide, but has a special connotation in Europe. I was sharing main stage at Paris Fintech Forum in January this year with Frederico Dea, the chief executive officer of Société Générale. And he said himself that in the Western world, banks are transforming from transactions to services, which I can explain in my simple language, making money by selling products to clients, that is a loan, a mortgage, an investment fund, an insurance product, to packaging those products into a service which is called advised, that is given to the clients transparently so that they are happy to pay for. That is very, very complicated. It's a huge transformation on the way banks are going to make money, which requires them to create better user experiences, more added value, in order to make sure that clients are happy to pay transparently for the products they buy from the banks. Now, the 
co-chief executive officer of BNP Paribas, Sophia Merlo, she was also sitting on stage. She, she said after Frederick that um, BNP Paribas asked uh, the clients in France if they wanted to pay for services. And the response was pas du tout which in French means uh, absolutely not. Because <laughs> there is a difficulty, of course, for clients to understand that the value proposition of banks. But she said, we have to do this because the MIFI too, so the uh, regulation about uh, the financial markets in Europe is coming. So we need to be more transparent and transform our revenues from embedded fees into product into something which is advisor as fees on top. Now, if we move across the Atlantic, we go to the US. I was also sharing conversations on Morningstar main stage in Chicago last May with uh, Larry Frink. He's uh, the chief executive officer of BlackRock. That is a powerhouse in investment management, one of the largest in the world. Yeah, they, they, they are very active in everything from ETFs, iShares, I do believe. Yes, they, they absolutely. They the former Barclays Global Investor, so they're, they're really huge. They're really huge. So basically, they sell products, right? But what uh, Larry said is that he expects uh, BlackRock five years from now to generate 30% of its revenues uh, from solutions. That means uh, pushing software in the, on the front line where advisory happens in front of the client to support the relationship. Why? Because also in the US where there was less regulation but more competition, the margins have been falling continuously over years. So now all of these guys need to find new added value propositions to put in front of their clients so that the clients are willing to pay for the services, which is the reason why without technology and without fintech, this transformation will not happen. Because the essence of fintech is to come up with a new way of talking to the client in a transparent way, using better user experiences so the clients are happier to engage into banking transformation and banking, uh, uh, basically, um, uh, operations. So this is, to me, is the key essence of 2018, because I guess that banks uh, have started to realize this in 2017, and they started speaking up clearly about that. So all of those fintechs which are capable of capturing uh, this element might be able to convey a better proposition to banks uh, and get uh, assign deals uh, or funding in order to help them for this transformation. Then, of course, there is always a space for other players to compete with banks uh, more directly, trying to reach out to clients, uh, but they need to be wary as well that this is what is going to happen in banking in 2018, 19, and 20 in Europe, and regulation is going to drive this process because it's based upon client protection, transparency, and privacy of the data. And what I also take from you is that you are seeing what's happening to the banks and how they interact with fintechs, how the fintechs can themselves help there, uh, get involved there. And uh, I would now like to hear something from uh, Luca's side. Luca, how you see the fintech side? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, being a fintech ourselves, uh, I'm, we're looking at, obviously, as, as Paolo was mentioning, there's a lot to do with the regulation in PSD2, which is uh, changing quite a few things. But looking at it really from from the consumer perspective, it's uh, I mean it's it's quite interesting as it's it's like the App Store, like the Apple App Store in 2008, when uh, when Apple came out with the App Store, people didn't really know what's going to happen, right? And PSD2 is is similar in that fashion, where it allows developers and different companies to leverage. And take so much data from from different banks 
and to be able to use that to create new financial products. So I think that's that's a huge advantage for not only fintechs like like us at Penta, but also for uh, developers and people who were who were never bankers. I just love you for the quote. The PSD two is is like the iTunes store of the European Union. I do believe a lot of people at the European Union will love you for that. Yeah, and no, because it's because I mean you mentioned PSD two, and then it sounds like this crazy financial. I mean something like a boring fintech term, right? But I mean, it, it really is. But if you look at what it is actually, it's it's really just like it's the App Store in 2008, and this App Store ended up enabling companies like Uber, Snapchat, uh, and millions of actually other apps, which uh, which have created millions of jobs. Yes, actually. So uh, I think PSD2 is going to do something similar. I also like this line, and uh, um, I would like to go back to one of the last articles which I published uh, with Robin Kiera, who is also a German guy. And the title was Innovation is Not an App You Can Download from Your Apple Store. And I want to elaborate on this one, as we mentioned the iTunes, because uh, just having access to APIs, uh, which allow integration of data in a stronger way compared to the past, like screen scrapping, uh, is not enough to make sure that uh, we generate uh, value for the clients uh, and we transform the way they do banking themselves. If there's something that uh, the dot-com uh, showcased to us and we learned in the last 20 years of the internet revolution is that ultimately only the platforms uh, really win. Let me explain this. If you think of Facebook, Facebook is uh, the platform for my personal life. LinkedIn is a platform for my professional life. Amazon is my platform for uh, consumption. Twitter may be the platform for my Donald Trump paranoia. <laughs> Uber can be the, tra the platform for my transportation, right? But where is the platform for my financial life, for my banking? doesn't really exist. Now, creating a platform for financial life means that we should start offering to the client um, a set of services in a way that they might be willing to pay for services like constant revenues for the fintech or for the bank. Think about the Amazon Prime and all of the products that go underneath that can be mortgages, loans, investment products, insurance products, retirement products still are relevant, but not in terms of generating the revenues for the institution. So they reduce the conflict of interest and they're willing to provide more services that for advice for decision making to their clients. That means being capable of using APIs, not just for payments, but to track everything that happens in the life of an individual and being capable of personalizing this relationship across multiple channels, across multiple verticals that are now dominating the banking relationship. Now, having a platform, which is a fintech platform that is client-centric, means that we need to resolve the simple problem of each and every one of us. And then I try to explain it this way. I work for IBM, such as you guys work for other companies, minus what I pay when I do my consumption is what I save. And if I'm good at saving, I can invest, I can lend and borrow, think about a peer-to-peer, -peer. I can do retirement, uh, I can donate, uh, I can insure, I can do many things. Now, all of these elements sit together. This is uh, the banking relationship that banks need to generate. And those fintechs or those banks will be, be capable of rebuilding themselves uh, as a digital platform, enabling to climb up the personal financial equation will be the winner 20 years from now. And we have already seen some 
companies trying to do that. Let's think about what happened this year, 2017. To me, it's amazing. A few weeks ago, PayPal announced that they will integrate a corner into their uh, solution so that when you go and check your payments on PayPal, you may also be capable of uh, having a view of your investments uh, because they did some seed funding with a corner. They're going to integrate them into their platform. Now, what PayPal is doing is they started from payment, right? Mm-hmm. One minus paying is saving, and they now claim up moving into investments. Why do they do that? Because Facebook bought the banking license in Ireland beginning of the year. PSD2 is coming next year. So Facebook has to get into payments anyway because of other reasons that we might want to discuss in another moment. So if Facebook enters into payment, PayPal's business model is at risk. So they need to differentiate themselves a lot more. That's the reason why they climb out the personal equation. So anybody that wants to create a new bank or any bank that wants to transform to become more digital needs to bear in mind that old banking was based upon pillars. New banking is not based upon pillars, it's based upon services because services are more important than products. Yeah, and talking about the pillars in the past, it was always like you had corporate banking, you had retail banking, you had wealth management, you had capital markets. There were all the, the, the pillars of a bank and there they were selling different products like investment products, hedging products, um, loan products and all of this stuff. And you're saying they're getting away from there? Yes, I'm saying that they're getting away from there for two reasons. In the US, maybe a bit more spontaneous process because of competition that squeezed the margins to the limit. That's why even BlackRock has to change the business model little by little. But in Europe, it's going to be due to regulation because all of these guys have certain incentives inside their institutions to do business in a certain way. So only regulators can force a change of the incentives and therefore motivate banks to engage into this transformation. Which is the reason why in my last year bestseller, Fintech Innovation, I, I had a, a clear message inside that was picked up by one of the first robot advisor entrepreneurs that put a Twitter out there in September last year saying, this Paolo Serone has a very strange point of view in this Fintech Innovation book. He says that regulation is the engine of innovation. And I say, yes, it is. Because if most of the Fintechs in the US and a large part of the Fintechs in Europe um, have a B2B type of uh, configuration, banks are not buying technology and innovation if they're not forced to do that because they're heavily troubled. And they're going to be even more troubled in the coming two years because the ECB decided that the non-performing loan has to be basically getting off of their balance sheets, recognized as zero value, and therefore they will further increase the transformation of their portfolios and the way they do business. So since banks are in this situation, and regulators want them to become more transparent in front of the clients, uh, they have two alternatives. On one side, they can follow the digital transformation, somehow becoming volume businesses because they simplify the products, they simplify client access to their services, uh, and they try to be more convenient in providing the same type of opportunities to the clients they have out there. But there's a problem with this strategy. The problem is that If you go down the line, imagine 10 years from now, and banks become more simplified and volume businesses, then is when Amazon or Facebook or WeChat can come to the market and take over their clients because they have many more touch points with individual customers. 
The other alternative for banks is to engage into this transformation and use fintech not to commoditize, but to generate more added value so that they differentiate themselves because they become the platform for individuals' financial lives. This way would be more complicated for tech fins, so the big giants like the GAFA, to get into the banking market. And they're getting into banking in any case, not because they want to become banks, Mm -hmm. but as we said before, because they are starting to compete one among the others. They see the business model of the Chinese tech fin. They started from conversations and payments. So they have to get into payments. And once you're into payments, is a moment that you get into saving, investing, insuring, so on and so forth, because, you know, appetite comes from eating. Sorry, Luca, we've been talking a lot here in Frankfurt. (laughs) No, that's all right. It's quite interesting, actually. Paola has always been talking about now the um, forcing of the banks that's happening now and that will happen next year. Are you guys actually realizing something from this push that is um, coming? So meaning, are there a lot of banks stopping by say, hey, guys, how are you doing? Should we sit uh, Should we sit down and have a talk and all this stuff? Yeah, so we often get calls from, from different consultancies or, or the big banks to talk with mainly their innovation departments. Uh, they basically just want free consulting from us to tell them how to do their job. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that <laughs> it's, it's true. If you ask any fintech, they'll tell you the exact same thing. What's actually interesting is that you, know, you look at the Deutsche Banks and the big guys and the innovation, which, I mean, PSD2, right? It, it's, a, like, it's aimed for 2018. But the real guys who are innovating without even being forced are banks like Solaris Bank, which is our partner bank, or uh, Rails Bank, which is a fintech without a banking license. So these guys are saying, you know, they took PSD2 more as a philosophy instead of a regulation. They said, let's do PSD2 even though it's not, it's not here. So they have this PSD2 model without even uh, having to embrace it, which I think is fantastic. And that that enabled companies like, let's say, number 26, when they started out in 2013, that enabled guys like us. So uh, it's more about having that mentality that this is the right way to go uh, instead of necessarily saying, all right, we have to do this. And for the big banks, the, the main problem is it's not necessarily saying, yeah, we have to open up our data. Their problem is, is that that they haven't even built their banks on an API-driven approach. They have all these legacy systems. So they're, they're essentially forced to, to build things from zero. And that's actually the biggest problem. So it's, I mean, PSD2 helps everybody. I think there's, there's no doubt about that. But it's more of a, I think it's more of a technological question for, for the banks. And I mean, that's why they come to us and kind of ask, hey, could we get some free consultants? Well, I do agree with you. The API is uh, a philosophy or a way of doing. I mean, you need to comply with that. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Then clearly, if you're already running a business uh, and you have uh, a series of problems to face, uh, I guess only the regulation uh, might force to shed the right attention to this, which is uh, a competitive element. And again, not just because PSD2 will be there and everything changes next year, because is about to deliver in the API and is about to use it in the right way. But it forces to think that exactly. the banking architecture needs to be different and data needs to be available to create better services for the clients because it is your data. It's not the bank's data. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's exactly it because everybody could be PSD2 compliant and then just do it, I mean, half-assed, to put it very bluntly, <laughs> you know, just to get over the regulation and then it's actually terrible. So, I mean, you can't really force somebody to do it. Everybody can always do it 1% over the finish line. 
It's about really embracing it and going 110% uh, above it. So I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, you see, my other point of view is that uh, aggregation becomes uh, very important. Uh, aggregation of uh, services, for example, aggregations of solution. I, I, I envisage a dream of a day where the fintech themselves will be able to aggregate the one with the other to create uh, a stronger proposition. I know it's difficult because every entrepreneur has his own point of view and his own pride about that. But again and again, only the platforms can win on digital. So staying too specialized might not help, especially the moment uh, the revenue generation mechanism moves out of products and moves into services. So products uh, means you can be sustainable only if you can grow very fast, extremely fast, which is not easy in banking. Services means that you need to put more than one added value onto your platform to invite clients to pay for a subscription, to pay for uh, for a different type of uh, uh, developer position. Now, let's think about what happened in the US too, in the space of robo-advisors, which is also a relevant element in 2017. Betterman, which is one of the first uh, robo-advisors uh, and one of the most famous in the US together with Wealthfront, uh, was born like a B2C, so decided then to move into B2B2C to provide solutions to financial advisory networks in 2016. And in 2017, decided to hire human advisors to move forward. Why? Because a lot of guys in fintech misunderstood the fact that even innovation is cool and digital is cool might not be enough to change the way people do banking for a set of reasons. And one of these reasons is for the fact that uh, while digital is uh, a pool technology, investing and insurance primarily are uh, push economies. That means that um, when you go to the supermarket as an individual, you go and pull your bread, uh, you pull uh, your beers, uh, you pull your shampoos from the shelves, and then maybe there's an advertisement that invites you to buy something else is pushed to you. But you typically go with a purpose. Jorn Menninger never told me, Paolo, let's take a look at what is going on on Amazon, right? <laughs> you go on Amazon to buy my books, and then you see somebody else's book, and you buy it. But you go with a purpose. Now, nobody would ever go in principles on the mobile looking for a UCTS compliant fund, which is an investment fund that you can buy from a bank or a certain insurance product. So it's way more complicated. Clearly, there are guys like me, like you, like most of the uh, people that are listening to this podcast today, which are fairly advanced in terms of the usage of technology or finance, but the majority of the individuals out there still are lagging behind so that means that you need to find a way to use digital in a way that you bridge the gap between the pool technology and the push economy. That is the reason why the most successful configurations still are those which have a hybrid modality to operate, where you have digital and then you have individuals on the other side that help bridging the gap with the final customers. But there's something which is happening too. 2017 was the year of the chatbot. Very limited, very primitive as first examples, but they are growing and they're getting better. So only when artificial intelligence will learn to become conversational, that will turn digital from pool technology into push economy and will allow digital to be self-sustained as a banking proposition in front of the client, which is the reason why AI should be the priority for all of the fintech that can afford it and understand it, because that is the way they will be able to reach out to client 
and motivate them to do more banking with them without having to create a, a workforce that is basically very expensive and difficult to organize. Got to admit one thing, the, the difference between the investment markets in Europe and the US is quite different because in the US you have more of those IFA in the individual financial advisors and here in Europe it's more done via branches but without getting into too much details there there are differences but I get your po basic point you you have to not only be technological but yes. you also have to involve the human factor to get people there on the ground like also maybe in branches. But again, this is an opportunity for fintech in Europe because the MIFID II and the PRIPS regulation, which are uh, uh, going into force in January 2018, will have an effect two, three years down the road, which means uh, opening up more the distribution networks, the distribution markets, which is now dominated by banks, and granting more space for networks of financial advisors that cannot do their job without technology because it's difficult to scale up on competencies. So for the first time, there will be a transformation, a likely transformation of the markets, which might favor those fintech, which are capable of providing their solutions to the new entrepreneurs that need to be supported to reach out to the client in convenient ways. Since we're almost running half an hour here on our recording, just to wrap it a little bit up, uh, one more question. Where do you see the fintech opportunities for 2018? Admittedly, we didn't even touch the uh, ICO craze that is going on right now, but that may be subject for another interview. Luca, wh where do you see opportunities for fintechs in 2018? You know, people often people often hate when when you interview somebody and then they tell you I have no idea. But I just you know, 2017 started with uh, with I mean at least in our heads because we're, we're we're building products for businesses and uh, it flipped from from a lot of talk of SME banking to now ICOs and now trading and selling crypto. So I think things are moving so quickly it's really hard to predict. But um, but we meet because we, we have, I mean, our customers are only businesses and startups. So the startups that we're meeting and speaking to and seeing, everybody is building so many incredible products. And I'm not, even, I'm not just saying that, um, j just to say that, but I, I think that fintech as a whole is moving so quickly that whichever solution or whichever problem you need, uh, it, it probably already exists or somebody's working on it. I just think that maybe 2018 or maybe it's going to be 2019 when all those solutions surface. And going back to what Paulo said, uh, it's about putting that on one platform, right? So, um, so the guys which can aggregate that and put that in one place so it's super easy to use. Um, I think that's going to that's gonna go a little bit beyond 2018, but 2018, 2019, maybe even 2020 is when we'll, we'll really start seeing the benefits of fintech. So this is my point of view. Now, if you look at the fintech ecosystem, we typically divide it into pay tech, insure tech, wealth tech, credit tech, and so on and so forth. Honestly, it makes no sense, again, because if we talk about client centrality, the client is always one, and you need to be capable of buying uh, an advisor relationship from a fintech or a financial institution to make decisions about his money in his life. But so it is. Now, it is also true, as Lucas said, that a lot of innovation officers or banks might have been doing some window shopping more than anything else, because effectively, those guys are wonderful individuals that are trying to change the bank, but they're not the final owner of the budget. 
So it's very difficult even for them to sell internally the innovation that they found outside or they wanted to co-innovate with a fintech because they need to find a way to motivate the management to transform what they sell to the client and now they ask clients to pay for those services because it changes everything. It changes their incentives. It changes their mentality, their way of doing. But if you look at banks in the last two years or three years, we can hardly see a bank launching a peer-to-peer platform. We can hardly see a bank launching clearly a cryptocurrency for you to trade. But we saw something very clear. Some banks launched their robo-advisors. Why? Because most of the banks in the Western world are transforming into wealth management institutions. Just take a look at their balance sheet. Look at the European banks. The major banks may have more than 50% now of their revenues coming from wealth management. What is wealth management? Wealth management means investment products and insurance products which are sold to retail individuals, affluent clients, high net worth, ultra high net worth, and above. Now, being these the major pocket of money that they generate at the year end, knowing that the credit market will be troubled for a few years still. So they will contract their lending operations. They will contract their mortgage operations. They need to make sure that don't miss out the opportunities on the well management market. But they also know that regulation is coming in Europe that might affect the margins they generate with the well management operations. And at the same time, in the US, they see that the competition that was brought to the market by Vanguard, which is like a powerhouse on ETF, like BlackRock or BlackRock itself with high shares, reduced their capability of making money. That's why they were more keen to buy and to create solutions that was addressing the world management market. Bank of Montreal launched the RoboAdvisor. You saw Mary Lynch with the announcements and the others positioning. You saw Union Investment that had the solutions here in Germany. Or just recently Deutsche Bank with Robin, their robo-advisor. Or Deutsche Bank. Now, not saying that these are finance solutions that will break through and transform the banks, but it clearly indicates that at least on one of these fintech pillars, which is WellTech, banks started to take action in 2016 and in 2017. Now, they will need to do more. And definitely in Europe, 2018, 2019, to me, would be a better place for the wealth tech solutions, which are capable of helping bank to transform. Does it really mean to replace what they do if you're a B2B fintech owner? It means to find a way to help them to go through this journey that moves them from transactions to services. Whew, that, that was a lot to digest, guys. Greatly appreciate all your thoughts, Paolo looking more into the banking space and what it means for fintech. Luca from the fintech area and uh, me, I basically just had to listen and add some content. Very great interview. Guys, uh, I really appreciate you coming here, having you here. And I really hope we can continue this uh, next year. Thanks for that. Yes, and don't forget that at the beginning of this show, the Bitcoin was 16,000. In the middle was 15,000, now maybe 18,000, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, keep, keep, keep Bitcoin on track, right? Yes. <laughs> Guys, greatly Thanks appreciate it. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Bye.